Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I've been getting uh, very deep into that research process these days, immersing myself every day in not only Brooklyn, but but uh, the, the Brooklyn of the past, uh, 1930s to, through the 1950s specifically. But uh, even though that gentleman, uh, the gentleman that I will be introducing you to, didn't grow up during that era, uh, he certainly has a lot of, about Brooklyn to talk about, and that is author Andrew Schiff. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to you, Andrew, first, as we always like to do for the shameless plug, especially since you were just on, on here uh, for episode four. So tell everybody about yourself. Well, um, I grew up in, in Manhattan Beach, Brooklyn. Um, spent a lot of time in Sheepshead Bay because they're – Sheepshead Bay is actually a body of water as well as a, a neighborhood. And my dad had a furniture store in Sheepshead Bay, which was around for 60, 70 years. It was started by my grandparents. And, uh, you know, so I spent most of my life in Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, and I have a master's degree – from SUNY Albany, and I also wrote a book on Henry Chadwick, was called The Father of Baseball, who had a lot to do with uh, making baseball popular as a journalist and through his statistical in- um, innovations and uh, advocacy of exercise and health. Um, and he was called The Father of Baseball, and, and that's the title of my book that came out uh, several years back. Excellent. And yes, the last podcast was mostly exclusively about Henry Chadwick. And um, I, again, I thank you for enlightening us on, on that uh, Brooklyn fellow. Um, so sure. in, terms of, in terms of your Brooklyn roots, how far back do they go? If you can give us a little bit uh, of, a, of a background of not just your, your, your own, but also your parents. My father grew up in the Sheepshead Bay area and uh, that's in the you know, community around there. I think they had to move because of the construction of the Belt Parkway. Um, so they were living where the, I guess, I don't know specifically where, but in the Sheepshead Bay area where there were houses that had to be, um, you know, raised because they were building the Belt Parkway. Um, my, my father's mother was born in Belarus, Minsk, and she came when she was about nine. She was born in 1896, and so she came here when she was about nine. She lived to 101 years old. My grandfather, her husband, um, was born here and was served in World War I. Uh, his parents were from Frankfurt, but he served in the Navy in World War I. Um, my mother's parents were much more ethnically Jewish in the sense they spoke Yiddish. My, my grandmother uh, came from Poland, a um, place called Pashemish, which is right near the Ukraine. And my grandfather is from a place uh, in Lithuania called Yavna. And um, they came over, they didn't come over together, but they met each other here in the, in the States. Um, my grandfather um, was a house painter, um, and they were like working class, but working class intellectuals. Um, 
my grandfather was very smart, and my uncles, my one of my uncles went to Yale. But um, my father's side of the family, they were different, and they, you know, they were more businessmen or entrepreneurial. Um, my grandmother and my grandfather started a, a restaurant. Uh, then they went to a linoleum store, and then it, it evolved into a furniture store. Um, so my grandfather, my grandparents survived the Depression. It was a very difficult time for them. Um, so I hope I'm giving you enough information <laughs> about oh, that. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. And, and you know, like I've, I've mentioned, uh, I mentioned on the last podcast that my mom, well, she, she was in many different places, including Queens at some point. But by high school, I know that she was uh, around the corner of Coney Island and Avenue Z, I believe. Uh, so uh, what oh, okay. was the furniture store called? Oh, simply called Schiff's Furniture, a C-H-I-F-S, okay. Schiff's Furniture. And it was right in smack in the middle of, of Chief Bay Road. Across the street was a, was a, a, a beautiful-tasting kosher deli, which served hot dogs and knishes. Um, and then there was a famous there was a pizzeria, which I still think is there, called Delmar Pizzeria. And then uh, it just had a lot of good food. And, uh, and there was another furniture store in that neighborhood called Wernick's. Uh, which was closer okay. to the train station, which was the, uh, uh, the the B train and now the B and Q train line. Um, my my mother lived in grew up in Bensonhurst. See, my uh, my mother my mother worked for my grand my grandmother's on the other side of the family brother as a secretary. He was a politician, and he wanted to set my mother up with, with his son. And they went to some sort of a party, and they I guess Marty's. Great, my uncle Marty's son didn't click with my mother, but she clicked with my father. My father was at the same party. This was 1966. And then um, they got married in 67, and I was born in 68. I spent my first years, couple of years, in a place called Beach Haven. Uh, it's, a, it's an apartment complex right off the Belt Parkway. And I have, believe it or not, even though I'm 51, I have uh, memories of that place. Um, I remember there was a pizzeria where I, I actually burnt my mouth because the, the pizza was so hot. And I also remember there was a, there was a laundromat there. Uh, I think the, 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 the address there was Lincoln Place. It was, that was the street. And I also have a kind of a, a, kind of a negative memory because I, 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 I guess I was playing, and there was this woman that was friends with my mom, and she picked me up, and she was so harsh that I started crying. Anyway, <laughs> so this is, and I also remember the, because we lived, as I said, lived in an apartment building. Um, I remember the elevator, uh, how it closed. I have vague memories. I had a memory of my of my, my mother and father having a little bit of a fight, a tiff, and my father banging the table and walking out. And um, I, that, I was like, um, I mean, it wasn't like a, a traumatic. I, was, I just remember that. And uh, so that's where I spent the first two years of my life. And then I moved to Manhattan Beach. Uh, we bought a home on Pembroke Street, and the houses on that block were attached houses. Um, if, you, if, you, if you go to, you know, Dover Street or Culver Street, you know, Manhattan Beach is set up A through Q. Q doesn't exist anymore, but I lived on the P block, Pembroke Street, which is toward uh, Kingsborough College. And uh, um, so... That's where we lived, and uh, my, it was my brother, my sister, and me. I was the middle child. My sister uh, was born the following year in 69. I was born in 68. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, we moved to Manhattan Beach, and there were people on the block that, we be, that I became friends with, that my sister and I became friends with. 
Um, and it's, it's amazing how time flies because everybody is, you know, doing something, working, have a job and are adults. And I remember a lot of, uh, cut me off if I'm talking too much, but it, if I, I remember in Manhattan Beach specifically, there was a lot of sports played. We played hockey. Uh, we didn't play, we didn't play, uh, basketball. We had to go to the courts for that. There was the whole court thing in uh, Manhattan Beach where you had to go to the courts and play basketball. But we played football in the snow, two-hand touch football. We played baseball, uh, punch ball, um, hockey. Um, it was a good sort of thing to, to, to you know, it, exercise is, you know, is very important. And I did a lot of exercise. I mean, I wasn't a, a great athlete, but I liked playing. And uh, so I got a lot of out of it, a lot of exercise out of it, which I need to get back into. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's <laughs> pretty all. much summing up. Uh, I lived in Manhattan Beach until I was 25, and then I went to lived up, upstate to Albany. I went to graduate school. Um, I graduated in two years, and then I stayed around for a little bit, and then I moved back to Brooklyn, and I lived in Ditmas Park. Um, and I, I rented a room, and I was working in sales, so uh, that's what I was doing at that particular time. Uh, up to now, I've been, I lived in Brooklyn again. I was in uh, Kensington, and now I'm back in Manhattan. So that's that's a summary of my <laughs> my existence uh, growing up. <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, it, it's um, uh, and just speaking of sports, that was uh, actually a great segue because my next question was, how into baseball was was your family? Uh, um, how how into the sports of Brooklyn? Uh, how many you know did, was was your father or mother into the Dodgers when they were here? Yeah, they definitely were. My father's favorite player was Duke Snyder. And my mother, like, she rooted for the Dodgers as well. Um, my mother is, was born in 41. My dad was born in 32. And uh, my father was like, a, he, he had like a knack for describing things. Like when he would write me a letter, Cam, you can actually, he was such a good writer that you can actually feel the temperature and, and the atmosphere the way he would write. And he would say to me, oh, when Duke Snyder hit the ball, you can see the light reflecting from the ball. I mean, he would go into like detail about that. And um, yeah, my, my dad was a, a huge Dodgers fan. Um, and my, I think my mom liked Gil, ha Gil Hodges. That was her favorite player um, from what I yeah. recall. Uh, my brother was a good athlete. He played um, baseball, a little baseball for um, Lincoln High School. Uh, but he, I don't, he wasn't, I mean, he was good. He won an award. Uh, he, my, my brother and I both went to Reynolds, uh, Reynolds, which is on Emmons Avenue near uh, the water, the Sheep's Bay Water. Um, and my brother won this award called the Jules Cantor Award, which was honored for the best athlete uh, in the school uh, in his last year. And so he was a good, he was a good ball player. Um, you know, he, uh, um, so everybody in the family liked baseball. Even my sister likes baseball. Um, and um, my brother and I like hockey. My dad wasn't really a hockey fan, uh, but my father liked basketball, football, and baseball. And he was a Giants fan, so I became a Giants fan. Um, so, um, so that's how it worked. Um, I, you know, um, my dad would tell me stories about uh, the Knicks teams that won in the late '60s, early '70s. Um, you know, he would, and also he told me he grew up watching. The Giants in the 50s with Andy Robustelli, Jim Katkavich, uh, Rosie Greer, uh, um, and I think I'm missing somebody um, because they had a 4-3 defense. I know Sam Huff was on that team, Frank Gifford, 
Uh, later on, got, they had a guy named Whitey Tittle who became their quarterback. My, my dad would sort of talk about mm-hmm. him. So there was a lot of interest in sports, um, you know, um, in the house. And I was always, I remember as a kid, I, they used to be, I think they, they used to be on, on, on ABC 7 and NBC 4 and Channel 2, CBS, would all have their sports around 6.30, so I would run to the television even when I was eating dinner, and I would check up on the on the highlights of the, of the sports. Because just remember this before cable television, and I was so into sports <laughs> that I would just want to watch all the broadcasts because they would come on one would come on a little bit later than the other. So I would try to cat. I would like change the ro- remote control, and I, I would just go from there and just go go from one to the other. Um, so I, I remember doing that a lot as a kid. Um, one of the things that happened. Uh, I went to PS195, um, which was in Manhattan Beach, and they had a really great yard to play baseball and football. And when I left there, probably about 10 years, five to 10 years after I graduated, they built a huge gymnasium, um, which took up most of the yard. So you, you can't play in the yard any longer. They just built uh, 195, built a huge gymnasium back there. So when I was, uh, I used to work at Manhattan Beach Jewish Center as, as a as a as a um, counselor, and we used to um, play ball then, use the field there. But that can't be done any longer because um, the big gymnasium takes up most of the space. So I was kind of uh, disappointed that ha- that that happened. Not that I was really using it at that point. But I had a lot of fun memories there, and I thought it should have been left alone. But, you know, I, <laughs> I had no control of the situation, right. but that's what happened. Well, speaking of disappointment, another good segue. Uh, you were born, did you say you were born in 68? Uh, August 28, so 1968. You, so you were born 11 years after the last Dodgers season. Um, you know, your dad would, it, it's amazing the way you describe the way your dad would talk about uh, Duke Snyder hitting the ball and how you'd feel the atmosphere. Um, so what, what was it like when your dad would describe the Dodgers leaving and, and also, um, what, uh, did, what, what, what baseball team did he, what did he raise you as, or, or what, uh, you may have said it, but I just want to go back to it. Well, what baseball team did you uh, root for growing well, up? Well, he became a Mets fan and I became a Mets fan. And, um, in the, uh, in like, 76 is when I started really following sports and having like a memory. My first Mets game was July 28, 1976. The Mets lost to the Pirates one nothing. Seeper pitched 10 innings and got a no decision, and they lost in the 11th when the Pirates scored a run. I don't know. I don't remember who scored the run. I think at that point we had left the game, and um, we were sitting in seats that I never I, – um, I think it was like – it was like – it was like the center part of the stadium where the press box normally is. And I don't know how we got wound up with those tickets, but I never sat in that area again. And um, so I was a big Mets fan. I, you know, obviously it wasn't, I mean, I was alive technically when they won in 69, but I, I wasn't like aware of what was going on. Um, but of course I was, you know, alive and aware of what was going on when they won in 86. So that was thrilling. And, um, you know, my, my father, he didn't seem angry or disappointed that the Dodgers left. I, I don't remember him ever being, you know, bitter about it. Um, 
I know there were a lot of Brooklyn Dodger fans that really were upset that they left, uh, and also New York Giants fans. Uh, but the, the Mets fans absorbed all the National League teams, the two National League teams, and, the, and, and even when they were bad in the early 60s, they drew very well because they, they took from, you know, they got the Dodger fans and they got the Giants fans to root for them. So it was an, they actually outdrew the Yankees in the early 60s because cumulatively there's, there were more National League fans in New York because of the two teams. So, I mean, that's, that's, the whole situation has changed now. But at that particular time, um, there were, I think, I'm pretty sure there were, there were obviously more National League fans and people willing to root for the team that replaced the Dodgers and the Giants. And um, so that was my first, uh, I remember that was my first Mets game. That was in 76. And um, mm. I, so, and, uh, so that was like amazing. And, you know, I, I, I think about it, you know, as a sports fan, you know, seeing somebody, people pitching 10 innings. You know, that, that would never happen today for whatever reason. I don't know why they, they changed the philosophy. But, um, yeah, that was my earliest memory. And, I, you know, I went, I went to a bunch of Mets games and Yankee games, uh, Knicks games, and I went to only a couple of Giants games. Um, I haven't been to the new stadium yet, but I went to Giants Stadium a bunch of times. And, um, and I went to a soccer game. Um, yes, sorry, David, go ahead. No, 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 but uh, I finish the thought about the soccer game and then I'll 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 ask. Uh, go ahead. No, I went to I went to a, a a soccer game in Giant Stadium. I think with the New York Cosmos, and that was one of the oh, last, wow. last couple of years that they were in, they were in existence. I, I think Kayleigh had retired. I think Giorgio Canelli was still playing for them. Um, but uh, yeah, so I went to one soccer game in Giant Stadium. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I I was going to say in terms of the, the pitching philosophy, you know, I, it, I guess it's just like this congruence of of um, science and and more people needed Tommy John surgery because the surgery existed. You know, there, there were just new ways to fix elbows. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it just it all comes together. And, and obviously the relief pitcher growing uh, to be a more important role just in terms of of strategy. Like everything coming together is probably what led to this over uh, paranoia, if you will, as to to putting innings onto the arm. And obviously, you know, when you go to the greatest example of driving a pitcher's arm into the ground, that would be Sandy Koufax. Yeah, I'm not. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure about Sandy Koufax's issue. I think uh, from when I read it, he had a he had arthritis. I don't think he had Tommy John surgery, but um, no, no. Just in terms of the fact that, like, like from what we know about uh, his history, you know, he woke up with yeah. with his arm constantly black and blue, and he had to retire at age thirty-one. Yeah, I'm not. I I, I know that uh, he retired prematurely, and he still made the Hall of Fame. He's a great pitcher. Um, many people consider him the greatest lefty of all time. Um, but uh, for me, you know, I think that there's a thing with mechanics that's going on. I, I, I had a room a female roommate um a couple of years ago who made a comment about there was Syndergaard's mechanics and she's you know, she follows baseball a little bit, she's a Cubs fan and she says that guy's gonna come down with an arm injury the way he throws and sure enough he did. <laughs> um so there's I think a mechanical issue and also yep. um the a lot of the pitchers don't throw in the off season. Um and uh, I think it's the way they're taught how to throw. I was just reading some article about it and, and I've, um, 
and, and I just think that uh, I, I don't know. There's a lot of money at stake, and um, more so than used to be. And it's, it's just a mystery to me. I mean, I have my I have my theories, but it's a mystery to me that why there's so many Tommy John surgeries. The, the, the big injury in the 80s, in the early 90s, was the rotator cuff surgery. That was the most important. That was the one that always came up for pitchers, not, not the Tommy John surgery. And all of a sudden, over the last five to ten years, the Tommy John surgery has become the, the surgery for most, for like 95% of the pitchers. And uh, the Mets pitching New pitching coach is a guy who's had two Tommy John surgeries. So I don't yeah. know why they would yeah. hire someone right. who, who didn't. And I, that, I don't know what uh, behooved them to hire somebody who hurt his arm twice. Uh, to, you know, um, well, I mean, you know, if they think he's got a good, a good brain on his shoulders about it. I remember, you know, there was a stretch of time back in <laughs> this is certainly a little bit of a tangent, but hey, it's the National League Baseball legacy of, of New York. Um, it, you know, for for a hot second there, Dylan G and Jeremy Hefner were the hottest duo in baseball. Was the hottest duo in baseball in 2013, and then they both got hurt. Yeah, I, I forgot about Dylan G's injury, but he he pitched some great games for the Mets, um, and he, he was pretty solid. And uh, Hefner, I, I remember him, but uh, I, I thought he was a, a relief pitcher, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, I mean, obviously, uh, he's into analytics. So I think that's one of the reasons why Dave, Dave Island, Island was was uh, fired, <clears throat> and they brought in that uh, older gentleman Regan, and then um, they settled with Hafner. Um, but uh, um, he's not a guy that uh, I would want to have my 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 pitchers listen to because he obviously couldn't take care of his own arm. Um, so what what kind of a wisdom would he impart? Uh, to some of the, the young pitchers the Mets have, I mean, he wouldn't really impart anything on on Jacob Degrom because he knows how, he knows he knows what he's doing. But some of the other pitchers, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, that's just my opinion, of course. But um, well, I think uh, with Noah Syndergaard, you uh, you know he he has the chance to be such a bulldog, and you see it when like I I think to that game. Uh, against Cincinnati, where he shut them down and got the only uh, uh, run out of a home run. Um, that center guard at his best, and you could see it on his face that he knew what he was doing and he wasn't going to let up that day. And yeah. the the problem, I think, for center guard is that he's he's basically seems to be conditioning himself like a home run hitter. Um, yeah. and, and, and he's kind of bringing that mentality into pitching. And unfortunately, like your roommate said, um, the way he had been going about it, uh, has led to, you know, just, and, and, you know, all these shots of him without a shirt and you see, you know, his physique, it, it and, and, and even with like a pitcher like Steven Matz talking about a lefty and, and, you know, he had, he has Sandy Koufax's number for a reason, I think, you know, especially coming from Long Island, like, so I, yeah. I think, they, you know, they were thinking on those terms in some fashion when they gave him that number. And um, I don't think he could ever be as good as Sandy Koufax, but if you look at it, like, like I always think that Steven Matt should be skinnier than he actually is. He just looks buffer than a pitcher sh- of, of, of his caliber should, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I haven't really thought about much of Steven Matt. Uh, the only thing, well, there's a couple of things here. Matt's, uh, 
pitched great at, at City Field, and then he pitched badly on the road. Uh, Syndergaard didn't have a good year last year, and, and he said he had problems having a field with the slider. But I, I remember when Syndergaard was at his best when he pitched. He was the only pitcher that, uh, that won a game in the World Series against the Royals. So, um, um, yeah. And he was like, and that was you after know, you, you know they, and that was after they, that was after they. Uh, he let up three runs after pitching at. Um, oh man, what's the, was it? Kane, Lorenzo Kane, was that the one? Yeah. Who, uh, yeah. He pitched at uh, uh, his head. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So yeah. that was that was quite a performance because he let up those three runs and then didn't let up anything else. Yeah. Yeah, he's um I mean he has the potential to be um he has a certain id factor to his, to himself. Um that lends that I don't think, you know, as much as great as Jacob DeGrom, he doesn't really have an id factor and it's one of the reasons why his his record is I, I think I mean he's no, I, I I'm happy he's won two Cy Young's Cy Young awards. But they don't score a lot of runs for him, and they seem to score more runs for for Syndergaard, uh, for some reason. And he had like a really good record two years ago with a thirteen and four record. Uh, his ERA was in the low threes, and um, uh, Degrom is only one or two games above five hundred. Um, well, the one thing, the one thing I think yeah. that that uh, the one thing I think that people uh, tend to forget when talking about those those factors is the fact that Jacob deGrom is going to get the other team's best as well. And so like, generally speaking, it's going to line up that way that you're going to get the ace of the other team. And so that yeah. could be a factor as well. Obviously it, it is like for a, for a pitcher of this caliber, you hope that your team can be good enough to squeeze a run or two out, mm-hmm. you know, just get three runs and let him do his work basically. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that just hasn't been the case. Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't always line up that way um, because as the season goes on, the rhythm changes of the of the rotation. So sometimes he does get like a a weak pitcher. But whatever, I'm glad he's won two Cy Young awards. He'll definitely he's going to end up in the Mets Hall of Fame. <laughs> he's already uh, you know won that, yeah. and whether he ends up in the Hall- Baseball Hall of Fame, I guess it still remains to be seen. <laughs> Well, I think you also at some point need to retire uh, number 48. And, um, and this, this is yeah. where I'll, uh, to help us segue to, uh, back to Brooklyn baseball, uh, I'll ask you about uh, your Cyclones experience. And, and, of course, the Cyclones are as well affiliated with the New York Mets. So um, have you enjoyed yourself out in Coney Island? I'm, I'm guessing just, uh, you know, even though you don't live out there, uh, you still have your roots out there and it's right down the street. Yeah, I haven't. I've only been to one or two Cyclones games. Um, <laughs> I um, yeah, I've only been to one or two Cyclones games. I I, I probably should go to more, but uh, it's a little it's more out of my more out of my, out of my way than well, now because I live up, up in up northern Manhattan. Yeah, I was I was going to say too that that you you live as far away from Coney Island as you could really possibly uh, of, and I guess just where you are, I always think. Uh, um, of uh, what's it called, Far Rockaway, because of the A train. Because yeah, past you. that's right, the A train. Yeah, that's true. Um, you, yeah, the A train is great. It goes to express and it gets gets to um, it goes a very far distance into Queens. I, I guess is Far Rockaway considered Queens, or is it still part of Brooklyn? No, no, I think Far Rockaway is Queens. Yes. 
Wait, but, okay, but, but, but because of because but because of its you know it's I mean and this, this is the thing that you got to talk about when talking about New York is the fact that we have brought together what still very much is even in in the blanket municipality uh, still very much is is like a, a a unity of of small towns a unity of of mm-hmm. small cities, a unity of small cities, a unity of big cities, some big cities, some small cities. Uh, but but the way I see it is that they should have never called it New York City. They should have called it the United Cities of New York. Right. Well, uh, you know, Brooklyn itself had a bunch of divided. I mean, Williamsburg was not part of Brooklyn for a long time. Um, you know, and uh, Queens, they, you know, they don't go by Queens, New York. When you, when you mail somebody a letter, you, you, you like, you enter the, the, the part of Queens that like Forest Hills or something like that. Um, we, you know, one time Brooklyn was its own city. And uh, maybe if, if it continued to be its own city, the Dodgers would have stayed because the, um, it wouldn't have been on the, under the jurisdiction of Robert Moses. They That's would have been somebody point. else. That's a great point. And uh, yeah, and also, um, um, you know, the mayor of, of, of Brooklyn, I think, may have, you know, I think uh, uh, Robert Moses was looking at where the Islanders play or the Nets play uh, as a place for, uh, as a park for for the Dodgers. And Moses um, uh, check, he uh, he he rejected the idea. He wanted to build a stadium where the Mets play, where in, in Flushing. Um, so. Um, I think uh, I think from that point forward, I think O'Malley decided to leave, um, and then I think Stoneham. I think the Giants had left already first, and then Stoneham said to O'Malley, "Will come to, to lo- go to Los Angeles, so you'll, you'll have that rivalry still with the Dodgers and Giants." Well, yeah, the way yeah. I understand it was that was uh, uh, they were thinking about because they had an affiliation in Minneapolis, um, not the St. Paul Saints, but the uh, Minneapolis. I don't know. I'll have to look it up right after I, I, I finish talking. But the I believe that they were planning on going to like Minneapolis and, and Walter had already been considering Los Angeles and he was like, check out San Francisco so we can keep that rivalry going. Oh. But but the um that's just my understanding of, of the way that worked. But I'm also just starting I'm reading like four books at once right now, including Forever Blue, the true story of Walter O'Malley and, and uh, his ownership of the uh, Dodgers of Brooklyn and Los Angeles. I, and I probably butchered the title a little bit, so I'll, I'll go back to that in a second. But um, I, I, there, were, there was a few places, uh, and I, I, I wanted to, certain directions I wanted to go as we uh, go deeper here, but I, I, I just lost it a little bit in terms of uh, Walter O'Malley and, and the Giants. But um, I... Uh, Oh man, but whatever. Anyway, um, it, it's it's a fascinating tale, one way or the other. Especially when you bring up that Robert Moses, you know, there, there would have been a completely different authority, which yeah. obviously Robert Moses was was uh, head of the uh, Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, and crazy enough, after Fiorello Laguardia regretfully gave him as much power as he did, uh, you know, I believe. LaGuardia died in about 47, 48. And uh, by then, it's, it's amazing that Robert Moses got more power to be in charge of all construction in the city, let alone yeah. just building, building the, uh, the highways. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, he built the uh, two uh, Whitestone and the Frog's Neck Bridge. Um, he built the, the highway going around there. Um, he, he was um, so whatever he, he built. And he built you know, early on. He did some you know he built um, some beaches. I think Plum Beach, um, Howard. You know I think it was what was it, Jones Beach. And I think in the beginning I think he started off with some good ideas and then he just went he just went off. And, um, I think he, he, he had more in mind, uh, you know, about getting traffic through the city as opposed to really caring about the city. You know, he did, yeah. and, and I, you know, it's been said in many different ways, but he didn't seem to actually appreciate the city that he was in charge of, of, of doing all this for. And he yeah. was more worried about getting like, like just people f- through it from Jersey to the, the suburbs on the other side, from the suburbs to suburbs, basically, Quick, mm-hmm. as quickly as possible, getting away from from the you know the urban grind, basically. And you know he he just seemed to to care more about the movements of commerce and the automobile and wherever people were going, mm-hmm. as opposed to caring about the people within the actual city. And, and, you know, it's just, you just, when you ever, you're, you're driving down Broadway, uh, past Soho and, and past all those, those, uh, uh, cast iron buildings and you've in Broom street specifically, like I believe would have been one of the, the direct, uh, uh, uh casualties of having a highway mm-hmm. down there. Um, yeah. not to mention the entire West village as we know it today on Hudson street. Um, so, or at least uh-huh. a, a big chunk of it. And, and it's unbelievable that somebody would look at that and not even have that type of humanity to understand the appreciation of how gorgeous the, the steel canyons are. Yeah. Uh, there's a portion of the Bronx that he destroyed, um, as well, those communities, uh, along the, um, the highway there. And also, um, uh, the BQE, um, they, there were houses there that he destroyed, um, that Moses destroyed just because he wanted to put up a highway there to connect with Manhattan. Um, so, um, it's just, um, you know, I, 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 it's too bad, um, you know, Brooklyn and even Manhattan, um, couldn't maintain it, some of its rural qualities. In my book, there's, you know, I talk about uh, people hunting for, for pursuing fowl was the word I used. Um, fishing, um, I mean, you can fish off Sheepshead Bay, but you can't, you can't really fish. There's, there used to be apricot, apricot trees. Uh, there's this whole thing, you know, in the Chamber which talks about Brooklyn in, in the 1800s, uh, which is no longer in existence. I mean, there were ponds, rivers. Um, you know, and that thing is totally gone. Um, and it's all apartment buildings and, um, and, uh, you know, um, asphalt and, uh, you know, uh, it does, it, it lacks some of the beauty that, uh, that it had. And even in through the thirties uh, and forties, there were still a lot of farms in Brooklyn. Um, there was a guy who worked in my dad's store named Walker and hmm. he would talk about what Brooklyn was like. He's, I'm sure he's long gone, but he was in his 80s, 90s, and he he um, he would talk about you know farms in Brooklyn and um, and things like that. I believe that Evans Steel was built. There used to be like a, a, a pig 
um, farm, and then they took over the area and they built that Ebbets Field. So I, I think it was, I think there was something like that where I read. Yeah. Um, no, that's true. Yeah, that's Ebbets Field was a pig farm. Yeah. So. Um, so, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, there's not, not not much we can do to go back in time, but um, um, it's good that Robert Moses didn't get everything he wanted at the end. So that that was good, I suppose. Well, I think he ran into Manhattan in 1964, meaning Manhattan during the not necessary, not really the height of the protest era, but at least um, the probably not even the infancy, but like the, the toddler ship, you know, I mean, there was certainly protests in the fifties against what he was trying to do with uh, the cross Bronx right. expressway. It just didn't work. I think he was, yeah. try- he was messing with Manhattan. Uh, but, but at the same time, then he, he, well, you know, he had uh, weirdly enough, he had less to do with this, but it was still a piece of land that, that uh, was being constructed on, you know, New York city. Uh, and that was the world trade center. Um, that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was, that was the, uh, the port authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, and it, it got rid of 12 or 13 square blocks of original Manhattan grid. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, it, it, even though obviously that was a little bit more dilapidated than the West village at the time when he was trying to do that, uh, when, when they were trying to do that, but it, it still, it, it still was a piece of New York history that obviously was just completely wiped away. And when you go there, you would never know it ever existed. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, I was at the, um, new world trade center building, the, um, and I went inside, I took a tour and as you go into the elevator, which I don't know, goes a hundred miles an hour. Um, they, they, they show you, it goes up as you go up what New York was like uh, prior to the Europeans coming there. Mm. And then as they, and then they show you how where it started with the city started growing in, in, in lower Manhattan. And then it goes all the way up to present times. And I thought that was really interesting to, to watch that uh, evolution as I was going up an elevator in, in, in the world, in the new world trade center. Um, so that, that was pretty interesting um, to see that. And uh, I took a, um, a bunch of New York City history classes with, uh, at Brooklyn College with Professor Edwin Burroughs, who passed away a couple of years ago from um, Parkinson's. And he won, the, um, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his book. Uh, he co-wrote the book with uh, Mike Wallace, uh, who teaches at CUNY. And uh, they won a Pulitzer Prize for that, um, for that book. So he was my professor. This is what happened before he won the prize. So I took a New York City history class. Uh, he's a very good lecturer. It was it was very interesting. Um, so yeah, I got to. So it was helpful when I started doing my chapter books on, you know, to know certain things about uh, early Brooklyn and what it was like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it was remarkable. You know, I was just actually talking about Inwood Park, um, and I guess Fort Tryon to an extent too. But what I know about Inwood Park is that it, it, I think it's 95% untouched uh, original Manhattan forest. Um, so the park is basically just, just you know, the woods of, of Manhattan that used to be there. <laughs> and I got to go there. Uh, I've, been, I, I've, I've been to Inwood, but I didn't know, I didn't know about that uh, at all. I, I, I've been to Inwood, but I didn't know about the, the, the forest area. 
Yeah, it's on the furthest northwestern tip of of Manhattan, and um, it uh, that also was, that was Alexander. Yeah, that was a, yeah, Alexander Hamilton. No, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, no, is that is that near the cloisters? It is, uh, and that's Fort Fort Tryon Park is basically like there's only like a road that that uh, sits in between them, and so I think there's similar fo- uh, foli- foliage foliage excuse me uh-huh. um and, and the cloisters are in fort tryon park which oh, i think okay. i'm pronouncing i gotta correct. check it out yeah yeah so so also uh, uh probably about two miles or so uh southeast of there is hamilton heights which you, you know i'm sure you're you're familiar with that neighborhood and and up there uh, in St. Nicholas Park sits Alexander Hamilton's, I guess it was his homestead or something like that. But you know that whenever that house was originally there, when Alexander Hamilton stayed there, um, that was just him getting away from the hustle and bustle of lower of downtown Manhattan. Uh, and, and he must have been able to see, as far as the eye could see there, just sitting literally on the side of the hill, uh, uh, that, is, that is Hamilton Heights. Yeah, that, that's uh, yeah. It's hard to conceive of that nowadays because of all the buildings. But um, yeah, I mean, like, a dip, well, I lived in Ditmas Park. Uh, that is an area where uh, it was considered like the first suburb. It was like a getaway from the city, and the, the, they have beautiful Victorian homes that are were are constructed mm-hmm. and absolutely gorgeous. And you go inside, and they're, they, they're big, but you go inside, they're even bigger when you get inside. And uh, it's just, uh, it's, the buildings uh, are just so beautiful. And um, so that was also another thing that, um, that was part of New York City's history, the construction of those uh, Victorian buildings, those Victorian homes in Dennis Park, and, and also Avenue H. Uh, Sam, when did you go to college? Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And then uh, I, I did a little bit of time in Brooklyn College, but but I didn't graduate. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the yeah. spot. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> um, I went to Brooklyn College as an undergraduate, and then I went to SUNY Albany for my master's. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I, I had always, when I, when I went to Brooklyn College, uh, they didn't have dorms, and, uh, and now they do just have, like, I think one building, but, but I think that it makes Brooklyn College better that there, there is housing. Um, and and well, I, I love that campus. Well, that's interesting that you say that, um, because when I was there in the mid to late 80s, uh, we had Robert uh, Hess was the, um, was the um, in charge of the school. Uh, and uh, he was trying to buy dorms for the school, and he never was able to do it. And the problem was that the library was in very bad shape. You don't, you probably don't remember. I don't know how old you are. I'm 51, but the library was dilapidated. And about 15 years ago, um, a little bit longer, they they redid the library, and it now looks great. Um, but they actually had a temporary library where the football field was. So they had to build like a temporary right. space. And, uh, and then they totally, they got rid of the overpass, which you would, you know, you'd go under as you were going through Bedford Avenue they got rid of that. Um, and so, yeah, they really uh, modernized things there. It's changed quite a bit. 
since I was there. I haven't been over uh, there. I haven't walked the, uh, the, I know that there's an entire, uh, you know, when you're going on Bedford Avenue, uh, on, I believe that if you're going south on Bedford Avenue on the right side is a completely new complex that you were talking about. And I haven't walked that, that complex yet. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You know, I don't know if you're aware, but a friend and I were, were responsible for um, starting the Brooklyn College Excelsior. The first two issues of the paper, which came out in, I think, in 88, um, oh, wow. for my Mac, Mac SE computer. And I was like, the, <laughs> well, I was the senior editor there, and I also became the first sports um, editor. Um, uh, so I, I was one of the people, and then I, I had a falling out with the upper staff because they didn't see, well, it's a long story. But anyway, it's not that important. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I, I was one of the founders of the, of the paper. There was, um, it, there was a, what happened was there was, um, the Kingsman is the main paper, was the main paper. And there was a friend of mine, uh, some guy I know, who wanted to, wanted a position at, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the Kingsman that he, that he was denied. So we decided to come up with his own paper called the Royale. And then I think the Royale, I don't remember correctly, but the Royale was stopped. And then we were able to, the, some of the guys from the Kingsford did something illegally, illegal to the, to the room. And we were able to get both rooms. Subsequently, um, we became the school newspaper. And then for some, I don't know how this worked out, but they, 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 the Kings people, uh, Kingsman people, they were able to, through uh, an election, get one of our rooms. So we had one room for the Kingsmen and one room for the Excelsior, uh, for the Excelsior newspaper. So that's a little bit of a Brooklyn college newspaper history. <laughs> um, so, well, so, so in terms of like, uh, have you been uh, a journalist uh, mostly like, like what, you know, obviously you wrote, uh, um, well, if you could also, if there's any, have you written any other books other than the Henry Chadwick one? No, I'm working on a, a book called Jews and Football. Um, I've been trying mm. oh, wow. desperately to get a to get a publisher for that. Um, I've, I've written about sixty pages. Uh, I may have to change the way the book is written to get some interest, but um, I I, uh, I don't want to use the publisher I used for the uh, for for the Henry Chadwick book. I think I can if I can get a you know a, a more popular publisher. I mean, McFarland's good, but it, it, it's um it's a, a small publisher and they don't really handle things uh, the way I like to, a uh, way I like, I had to actually fight them. They were going to do the title that they were suggesting was Henry Chadwick, a baseball biography. And I'm like, I said to them, you have to call the father of baseball, a biography of Henry Chadwick, because that was his nickname. And right. you can't just right. say a baseball biography. If you say the father of baseball is obviously it's more enticing than just saying a baseball biography. And they were like, well, you know, they, I agree. we have Harry, they have, Harry Wright was the father of baseball. And he went, yeah, and I said, it's a different title. You, you already have a book on Eddie Collins that says Eddie Collins, a baseball biography. So you have a Henry Chadwick book that says a baseball biography. So why don't we do the father of baseball? Wouldn't that make more sense? So they, they acquiesced. And then um, <laughs> a friend and I designed the cover. They, they actually did a variation of the cover that my friend and I designed. Uh, ours was like mostly green, but they, they, blued it up more if there's more blue in it so i was like very hands-on um you know with that so um yeah so that's uh that's that, that story <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, no, it's it's very it's always interesting to get some of the uh, the, the background and and insight into the publishing of a of a book, you know, one way or the other, and. Um, yeah. It, you know, it, it kind of loops us back around uh, to, to Brooklyn since uh, Henry Chadwick and yourself uh, are both were basically raised in Brooklyn. Henry Chadwick coming over here when he was 12 years old. Um, yep. it's, and, and it seemed like – let's loop back around here because this is something that we, we didn't really get into and something that just popped into my head about his accent. You know, it, it seemed at least from, from – um, the baseball uh, documentary Ken Burns that I that I watched that they seem to try to sell that he still had a bit of an English accent. So what what do you know yeah. about that? Um, I don't know anything about that because I never heard him speak. Um, he was came in. He was twelve. I, I doubt <laughs> he would have like a really thick Brooklyn accent. He probably spoke in a very proper English because he was a journalist and he had a, a, a very fine education. Um, you know, Ken Burns' documentary on baseball was it was a piece of garbage. It um there were a lot of things they that they put in there that were <laughs> falsehoods. Um a lot of his documentaries are you know, exaggerations and when when the Civil War documentary came out, a lot of historians were didn't think it was very historically accurate. I I, I don't remember what but I know there were people upset with the jazz documentary they're upset with the baseball documentary he lied that that the dodgers had lost their last game in, in ebbets field when they actually won the last game so he, he would make stuff up so i i don't know he's not um he's more of a, a film maker trying to entertain rather than uh somebody making a serious documentary i think his brother's documentary on new york were better uh, I, I enjoyed New that. York, um, I just recently watched New York. I mean, it, it is it is uh, fascinating, and uh, a lot of where you know but, I'm getting some of the Robert Moses stuff, and and they they use Robert Caro, Caro, um, whose book I uh, I have yet to read, and I was just thinking to myself that I needed to, that's the next book I need to buy, um, that you know I uh, Robert Caro was used a lot for the the Robert Moses uh, historical stuff with that new yeah. documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was in the, uh, there was a, a more recent, um, uh, uh, he was there. It, they added, they added an additional chapter about like 10 years ago and Cairo was in it. Um, he wrote a lot of books on Lyndon Bay LBJ. Um, and uh, so he's like to consider the expert on Lyndon Bay John. I mean, there have been other people written about him. But he was LBJ was absolutely an absolute lunatic. Um, but that's that's something else again. Um, but uh, I mean, he was an effective legislator. He got a lot of stuff passed. Um, but um, you know, so but he, I mean, he would. Yeah, he he uh, he was really crazy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but, but he, yeah, but he I've, was heard, a, I've heard some. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a, he was a great legislator. Um, he was able to get a lot of the civil rights bills passed. Um, so he was a mover and a shaker. Um, so that, uh, that's all I have to say about LBJ. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I think you know we'll start to to segue into our, our final uh, final segment. You know, it's, it, we have about nine sure. minutes left till the hour. Um, okay. So uh, let's let's use that. You know, it it, it I, 
you really can't stop talking about Robert Moses, you know, and, and what he did to this city. And, and, and sometimes, you know, right now you, you can certainly feel the, the way that he has shaped everything, you know, for me as a, yeah. as a driver uh, every day, you know, I'm, I'm constantly going along the West Side Highway uh, through Riverside Park. Um, you know, you're going on the FDR Drive. And he was able, you know, we were talking about the, the highways that he had wanted to, uh, uh, he had wanted to cut through lower Manhattan, but he was also going to basically cut through Times Square, cut through 42nd Street. Yeah, and then try to do, I think, 125th Street. And um, right now, with, with nobody on the road, you really feel what he was trying to do. You know, because you do get around the city very quickly now that there aren't any cars on the road. Um, but yeah. I, I think I think his big picture uh, uh, just didn't have any humanity involved in it. Yeah, he was um, cut off um, from humanity. I think you know um, some of the detractors of Cairo's book said that he, he they didn't he didn't mention some of the good things he did early on, um, like the formation of a lot of the beaches in Long Island. Uh, Brooklyn and whatever. So there were, I mean, um, anytime you um, write a biography, sometimes the author will, uh, they may not have all the information or they just have a, uh, like a skew, a, a, you know, like a certain angle. Uh, and, uh, you know, Robert Caro has his angle, you know, uh, there are other books written about LBJ other than the, than the Cairo books. Now, this is not to say that he's not a good writer. He is. But uh, Doris Kearns uh, Goodwin, she wrote a book on LBJ. Um, there are other mm-hmm. people who have written books about him. And and um, there are someday Sarah somebody Brooklyn else will write a book on Yeah, oh, yeah. And, uh, no, no, she, I'm sorry. Let me, let me rephrase it. Brooklyn Dodger fan. She, she was um, uh, Rockville Center, Long Island, but her father was from mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So it's it's really hard to tell. Um, you know, you, there, there's always, I'm, I'm sure at some point there's going to be another Robbie Cairo book, uh, or there's maybe somebody who did a review of the book and pointed out some of the um, things that were in, in that were in there. Um, so I'm, I'm actually thinking about writing a second edition of my Henry Chadwick biography because um, uh, I've come across some new material that I would like to include. And I haven't really been in contact with McFarlane lately because I, I think they're on lockdown, but I'm, I'm actually mm-hmm. thinking about do, doing it. There's a bunch of um, stuff I would like to include and I can include about 30, 40, 50 pages and more, more images. Um, so that might be a uh, thing, you know, I'm considering that because I think it would be, uh, make the, uh, it would make the, the current book, it would make the new book um, more comprehensive. Not that it wasn't comprehensive to begin with, but the, I think it was. Um, it would make it, you know, obviously make it better uh, than the than the original, in my opinion. But the, the original is good too. I would suggest you buy it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and that's a good segue into our final word. Uh, I really appreciate you helping me to go. Uh, in different, so many different places. Uh, that's what I, I love about these shows. That's what I love about these conversations. Is it 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 breeds uh, uh, insight, thoughtfulness, and, and conversation, and, and I appreciate you helping me do so. Uh, so, yeah. without further ado, without further ado, before you give us uh, your final word, 
uh, please give us your shameless plug. We love shameless plugs. Tell everybody uh, where they can find you. Well, um, where they can find me? Well, um, I'm on Facebook, um, Andrew Schiff, uh, C-H-I-F-F. Um, you could, um, on Amazon or, or, or the publisher's website, mcfarland.pub, mcfarlandpub.com, I, I forget which one it is, and has the great biography that I wrote on Henry Chadwick, uh, which was refu- reviewed and, and got some good uh, reviews. And um, so um, it's a great, it's, a, it's, it's an important piece of baseball history. It's, um, it's, it's someone who is uh, vital to the development of baseball as a national pastime. And um, he is the only journalist in the Players' Wing of the Hall of Fame. Um, uh, and mind you, uh, it does say on the plaque that he invented the box score, which it, he did not. But he invented the in-game scoring system, right, like right. the use of the word K for strike, for, uh, some things like that. Uh, he was also involved in the rules committee to helping baseball develop its uh, specific rules and certain character rules that were important for baseball's development. Um, and I've written some other articles. I, I was in, um, I wrote an article, a couple of articles uh, about the 69 Mets uh, called the, the, the miracle uh, has landed. It, it came out about 10 years ago and I wrote a couple of articles um, about one about Gary Gentry and the other about Eddie Yost, who was the third base coach. Um, so I've written, I've done a lot of like freelance writing as well, basically on sports. I was, um, so that's it. That's pretty much. <laughs> well, excellent, Andrew. I appreciate your time today. I appreciate your Brooklyn history and uh, thank you mm-hmm. for joining us. Thank you for Sam, joining us on the so, Bedford Sullivan so podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so, so much, Sam. And uh, we look forward to, I look forward to speaking with you in the future. You as well, and you're welcome back anytime. And thank you all for listening today. Uh, we will be back with Phil Maylard on uh, a Friday, I believe, at uh, around the same time. Thank you again. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.